This is an ABC podcast. Hello from David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone once again. And uh, I'm thinking this week about one of the most depressing pieces of video footage that I've ever seen. It's the little three-minute black-and-white silent movie of the last thylacine. And for those who might not know, the thylacine is or was a native marsupial that lived in Tasmania. It's also known as the Tasmanian tiger, even though it's more like a small wolf than a big cat. And this video was taken in Hobart Zoo in 1935. And what we see is the last captive thylacine just kind of hanging out in its cage and pacing around and yawning and generally looking bored and dispirited as animals in zoos so often seem to look. The animal in the video is believed to have died of neglect, and that was the end of not just that particular thylacine, but the thylacine species as a whole. It's now generally agreed to be extinct. So that's a sad story. But over the past couple of decades, scientists have been working to give it a happy ending. Genetic technology has brought us to the point where it could be possible to bring the thylacine back from extinction. And of course, not just the thylacine, but other animals as well. For example, woolly mammoths. And like a lot of science these days, it sounds really cool until you start to get right into the ethics of it. And there's the whole question of what we owe or don't owe to vanished species. There's a very complicated environmental debate to be had. And then there are philosophical questions that have to do with identity and the authenticity of reverse genetically engineered animals. Well, Christopher Lane is a research fellow in the biosciences group at the University of Sydney, and we're going to be hearing him talk about de-extinction today with Kate Lynch, who's a lecturer in the History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Melbourne. This conversation contains a lot of philosophy. It also contains a lot of science, and I'm going to be running it across the next two episodes of The Philosopher's Zone. This is part one, and it was produced in collaboration with the Australasian Association of Philosophy. De-extinction is a set of techniques which utilise the remnants of extinct populations for conservation. These remnants can be found in all sorts of places, but usually they're found in the remains of dead organisms. So tissue samples that can be collected or preserved in museums through drying, pickling, freezing, but also naturally preserved specimens. Uh, The most well-known cases of these are the remains that have been found frozen in permafrost for tens to hundreds of thousands of years, which contain well-preserved DNA and organism tissues. Now, these remains can be used to create organisms which are ecological proxies of these extinct populations. So this just means that they're going to be extremely similar to the extinct population. They're going to have a lot of the same DNA, and as a result, they're going to look, act, behave the same, and hopefully as well function in the same way in ecosystems to restore these ecosystems to some sort of previous state. And that's one of the major hopes for de-extinction. And there's three main methods by which de-extinction is occurring. Now, the first is one which I probably won't go into too much, but it's just selective breeding. The same selective breeding we've been using for agricultural animals for and plants for a long, long time. And this is where related populations to the extinct species create, uh, they actually contain bits and pieces of the DNA and of the behavioral features of that extinct population. And what you're looking to do is backbreed all these features that are scattered amongst these different populations into a single 
uh, set of individuals to recreate something that approximates the extinct species. And this has been attempted since the 1930s, so it isn't new, uh, with the species known as the auroch. So the auroch is the extinct ancestor of all modern cattle, and bits of auroch are scattered throughout the different species of cattle that are found throughout the world. And the aim is to breed these all into a single population, which is to make some sort of auroch-like wild cattle that can be re-released into the wild. Now, one of the other techniques is cloning. So cloning is when you take the centre of a cell, uh, its nucleus, so that contains most of the DNA of that species, you inject it into an ova, which is the female sex cell of a closely related species, then fertilise that closely related species through IVF, gestate it, and then you'll have that individual born. And this technique has been used to actually bring back a species of goat known as the Bacardo. Now, the last Bacardo died in the year 2000. Her name was Cecilia, and Cecilia was going for a walk uh, through the hills, and she got clobbered by a large tree branch. Oh, no, poor Cecilia. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But fortunately, I mean, well, not fortunately for her, but fortunately for, you know, the Bacardos generally, they could take a sample of her skin because she was chipped, tracked, they knew where Cecilia was at all times, and they actually stored those cells and attempted to clone her. And in 2003, for all of seven minutes, uh, the Bacardo was, I guess, successfully resurrected as a clone of Cecilia was born. It only lived for seven minutes and they haven't attempted it since. So you could question whether that is a successful de-extinction to bring back a species for a whole of seven minutes. Right. And do you, do you know why the clone only survived for seven minutes? So cloning is difficult. When you do cloning, uh, you're taking an older cell from the individual. And to sort of put it broadly, it's losing, as you live, your cells lose some of their resources. And when you clone, often you end up with various problems. It's a lot more difficult to produce a successful clone. So often it takes lots of attempts to bring about clones. And often when clones are born, they have shorter lifespans than individuals that are born naturally. But these aren't the methods that are really catching the eye. And they're probably not the methods that are the reason that de-extinction has become this hot button issue The big development is the use of genetic modification to code the DNA of an extinct species and then introduce it into a cell. So within the last 10 years, major advancements in genetic engineering technology have allowed for the rapid modification of genomes. So these are just the sort of strings that record all the genetic information And they can be changed quite rapidly with this new technique uh, called CRISPR-Cas9. Basically, it's a molecule that goes along the DNA code. It can cut it in very specific places, and then you can have a new sequence inserted. Now, this matters for de-extinction, as instead of having fully intact cells like you need for cloning, you can attempt to identify the full sequence of the extinct species from broken bits of DNA. You know, you can find the broken bits of DNA that are scattered around in different remains and then recreate a full sequence. 
I see. So are you saying you can have lots of different types of remains from different individuals and then bring that together to create a new sequence of some sort of extinct species? Exactly. So, you know, you don't need that fully recorded intact sequence to be able to use de-extinction now that you have these techniques, which can cut and paste different little sections of the DNA and then create a full sequence. And this means you can do basically an iterative process of inserting more and more of the DNA into a particular cell line to make it more and more like that particular extinct species. So say, for example, we currently have coded 95% of the thylacine genome. Uh, There's fantastic work that's been going of identifying its full sequence. And the aim is to get that full sequence or as much of it as possible and then cut and paste bits of that DNA into a related species. In this case, it's the fat-tailed dunnart, uh, which is a fantastic little yeah, name. Yeah, tell me more about the fat-tailed dunnart. I've never heard of the fat-tailed dunnart. Uh, so it's a marsupial. And while it's not the closest relative of the thylacine, it is a relative and it has a faster sort of uh, breeding time than, say, its uh, closest relative, which is the numbat. And so it allows you to do more with it. So basically, the aim is to just use this population, insert more and more thylacine DNA. And then once you have a cell line, which is mostly thylacine, then you'll use what is fundamentally the same technique as cloning to then inject that fertilized over into a dunnart or other related species, which will then give birth to an individual which is mostly thylacine. And this process is the same process that they're using to try and bring back mammoths and try and bring back uh, passenger pigeons and lots of other different extinct species for which we have well-preserved remains. Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. So it sounds like there's lots of incredible species that scientists are already looking at bringing back through de-extinction through these new technologies you've been talking about. But could we could we bring back any species we like? I know there's going to be listeners out there who are immediately thinking Jurassic Park, big dinosaurs, you know, out out somewhere in the open or in a semi-enclosed space, hopefully. Are dinosaurs a possibility for de-extinction? Uh, unfortunately not. Okay, well, maybe fortunately, actually. <laughs> yeah, maybe fortunate. Yeah, I don't know. I, I still love Jurassic Park, so, you know, that sort of brought me into this as well. Uh, 1993, not the, not the new stuff. But, yeah, no, the thing is that DNA, it degrades rapidly. Uh, in most samples, DNA has a half-life of about 521 years. So after 521 years half the bonds between the individual letters that make up DNA, they're broken. And this relatively rapid rate at which DNA sort of breaks up means the whole sequence is quite hard to identify, even if those molecules are still sort of floating around in that soup. Uh, Many compare creating the full sequence from these broken bits to finding a book that has been pushed through a shredder and then trying to piece those little bits bit by bit together. And this is where related species become really handy because the related species is a fully intact book. And you can use that as a way to identify where things should appear, use it to piece back the sequence. And as well, if you have little gaps, then you can fill in those gaps with those related species. Now, 
the oldest sequence of DNA that has been recorded was a 1.2 million year old bit of DNA from a mammoth stuck in the permafrost for a full 1.2 million years. So that's really impressive, but it's a long way off 65 million years ago that we would need to go plus 65 million years plus that we need to go back to get some dinosaur DNA. And of course, that's going to be a little fragment. You know, imagine finding a single sentence and saying, I've discovered a book. (laughs) You know, you need a lot more of uh, those sentences to create a full book to have a dinosaur. And that's the thing. This is just to get the DNA sequence. Once you have the DNA sequence, you then need to find a closely related species. And I feel like in the discussion around de-extinction, people don't think about the surrogate species. You're going to need genetic compatibility between those species and often physical compatibility. For all the buzz about mammoths, there's a real question of how they're going to actually be born because their closest living relative is Asian elephants. And Asian elephants are a lot smaller than a mammoth. You know, there's real risks in childbirth. And given that cloning is imperfect, you're going to have to have lots of pregnancies. And an Asian elephant pregnancy is 18 months to 22 months. That's a lot of time pregnant for these individuals for possibly unsuccessful pregnancies. So we really need to consider the suitability of the surrogate species and its welfare. And if that species is of conservation value, should we be investing the time of having them pregnant with another species versus having them give birth to their own species to make sure that they're viable. So this is going to be a critical part of de-extinction. On Radio National and the ABC Listen app, you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone. This week, Kate Lynch in conversation with Christopher Lane from the University of Sydney. Chris is a research fellow in bioscience, and he's talking about the ins and outs of de-extinction. And as I mentioned earlier, this is part one of a two-part series. More to come next week. sounds like there's lots of scientific problems still to be nutted out when it comes to this technology de-extinction. But as well as scientific problems, I know in your work you tackle a lot of philosophical problems related to the topic. So tell me, what can philosophers bring to the table for this topic? This is one of the really cool things about engaging with de-extinction is that when you wade into the debate, you can just see that it's already rich with philosophy. You know, a lot of old philosophical debates are being discovered anew out of necessity because this is such a confronting and new technology. You know, do we have some sort of responsibility to preserve life or to resurrect it as well? You know, what is conservation for? What is our responsibility to other species? And what's the significance of extinction? So these are questions that I've been interested in a while And you suddenly see people engaging in them in really rich and fascinating ways. You know, the thing is, philosophy just brings sort of experience dealing with these ethical questions and sorting out whether these positions are coherent or ultimately lead to negative consequences. But it's not just ethical questions that matter in de-extinction. There's also questions of identity. So, for example, is... 95% of a thylacine genome edited into a dunnart, born of a dunnart, 
a thylacine? Or have we genetically engineered a speciation event to create a new thylacine-like species? I personally think that it's something more like the latter, but understanding why requires some deep understanding about debates around what is a species, you know, what does it mean for something to be the same or different? And such metaphysical questions, while they seem arcane, really matter when it comes to conservation legislation, because how we define species bears on whether they're legally afforded protection and what sort of protection they're afforded. Okay, so when it comes to the kinds of species that scientists are interested in, you've mentioned a couple of times the thylacine, and this is one that has been getting quite a lot of attention if um, anybody's heard of de-extinction in the Australian context. I mean, one of the philosophical questions it looks like people are tackling as well is how you choose which species to bring back using this technology. So why do you think the thylacine is getting so much attention? Yeah, the thylacine is a really unique case in the Australian context, but in the wider context of de-extinction, you know, it's a recent extinction. The last thylacine died in Hobart Zoo in 1936. And given the recent nature of this extinction, there's a lot of DNA that's well-preserved. There's lots of thylacine remains in museums. You know, a lot of them have skins, but as well, there's a famous... Uh, preserved uh, thylacine pup in ethanol, which is in really good condition. So we have really good sources of DNA. But that doesn't really explain why that's the focus. You know, the thylacine has this huge hold on the Australian psyche for thinking about species and thinking about extinction. You know, the thylacine, it's an environmental icon. You can see it on various depictions around Tasmania, you know, every second store will have fuzzy little thylacine or something like that. It's on beers. And the reason is largely because it's extinct. And it acts as this reminder of the fact that humans cause extinction. When you think about extinction, particularly in the Australian context, you think about the thylacine. And it really comes from, I think, a a place of guilt, You know, it's the knowledge that uh, the Tasmanian government put a bounty on thylacines, which ultimately led to their destruction. You know, there's a real natural sense that we, as the Australian people, in some way feel culpable for this extinction. And many argue that given this sense of grief or moral culpability, that's the reason why we should commit to de-extinction. This can be seen very clearly in... uh, Mike Archer, who's a biologist who's been one of the leaders of de-extinction research, uh, he made an argument uh, about 10 years ago that says, if it's clear that we exterminated these species, then I think we not only have a moral obligation to see what we can do about it, but I think we've got a moral imperative to try and do something if we can. So the idea is that we as a society have wronged the thylacine, causing it to go extinct. And that means that we have a moral obligation to resurrect it, given that we've wronged it. And I've seen scientists involved in de-extinction make this debate. I've seen philosophers sort of make this move and conservationists as well. And as well, I think that this is one of the major motivations that when this idea hits the public, like, yeah, we're culpable for the extinction of the thylacine. So if we can bring it back, we really should. So it's certainly intuitive that when we do something wrong, we've got a moral obligation and we should do some action to make that better, some sort of reparation. 
And I can think of lots of intuitive cases in human contexts. Do you think that the way we think about this in a human context is the same as the way we should think about it for de-extinction? Or do you think there are some differences with this example? Yeah, so reparations are undoubtedly a important and accepted practice. But let's step back to the interpersonal case and build up from just interpersonal interactions in which you feel some sort of guilt and then want to make it up to the person, up to collective reparations between peoples and nation states. So starting off with a really low stakes minor case of wronging someone, Say you organise with a friend to catch up with them, you know, immediately after work and you realise in the last minute that you just don't have the energy to go out and you cancel on them 10 minutes before you're supposed to meet. Now, this isn't a good thing to do. You know that they're probably already on their way. You know, it's a massive inconvenience to them. They'll feel let down and likely you should, you know, feel some sort of guilt for that. And maybe this guilt then obliges you to do something to rectify the situation. Say you buy them an extra round of drinks next time or, you know, you buy them dinner, just something to sort of let them know that you know that you've wronged them in some way. Now, the key part of wronging someone in these interpersonal cases is that the person has well-being, interests, welfare that in some way are impeded and Really, you need to be some sort of living agent getting around in the world to be able to have interests or welfare. Now, consider the thylacine. We certainly wronged many individual thylacines, but those individuals are long gone. Replicating large sections of their genome into another species really doesn't repair that sort of damage. You're not rectifying the damage done to the agents who have suffered. Further, most of the claims about having wronged something is about wronging the species of thylacines. So instead of owing the individuals, we owe the species some sort of moral debt. Now, species are very different to individuals. Individuals have individual interests. It sounds quite odd to say that species have some sort of collective interest. Now, this is where certain people have pressed the idea that there are collective reparations, particularly in the human case, and they are a sort of accepted part of the discussion. One of the most famous cases of reparations is after World War II, the German state made reparations to Jewish peoples due to the damage that they did, you know, the horrific damage that they did. Now, the thought is that we as an Australian society might owe reparations to the thylacine species. But there's some real big differences here. You know, the important differences is in the human case, there are clear inheritors of the damage caused by the German state, the loss of family members, the loss of oral history, you know, the loss of culture, wealth, possessions, communities. All of these are felt to this day by the people who inherited this wrong. So this is where the case of ethics and reparations become difficult in the case of owing extinct species some sort of moral or, you know, actual reparations. There's no clear inheritor of the wrong in the ecological context. One could argue that the ecosystem has suffered due to the removal of thylacines, but 
it's really an open question as to whether that ecosystem still exists. You know, the ecosystem has undoubtedly changed since the thylacine. And again, it seems quite odd to talk about ecosystems as having interests and welfare that are in some way impeded. So generally, I find it a bit tenuous to apply this moral framework of duties to the cases of de-extinction. So if moral duties can't be established for this case of de-extinction, if moral obligation just doesn't really work in this framework when these organisms are no longer alive anymore and when the ecosystems have changed, do you then think there are other reasons we can justify the use of this technology? Yeah, I think that there are other reasons to engage in this research which aren't built around some sort of sense of moral obligation. So while ecosystems might have changed, there are environmental reasons to justify bringing back these species, or at least which support the idea of bringing back these species. Many of these, uh, the species in question with de-extinction are sort of large animals which have large ecosystem effects. And the thought is that they might restore ecosystems to a previous state. So this is one of the major justifications for mammoth de-extinction. Some of the scientists claim that the mammoth could restore the mammoth tundra ecosystem because when the mammoths graze, they remove all the fresh snow from the top and then they allow for grasses to grow. And counterintuitively, by exposing the ground to air rather than insulating it with snow, uh, you end up cooling the ground and preserving permafrost. And the grasses also allow for the absorption of carbon and as well you allow for more species to move into that area and make it a more fertile ecosystem. Wow, so mammoths as terraformers. Exactly. Mammoths as terraformers and mammoths as climate warriors is the claim. (laughs) So these are big claims. And restoring thylacines as well, the thought is that by restoring the largest marsupial predator that has recently been in Australia, you can restore the Tasmanian ecosystems to some sort of previous state and make them more uh, healthier in some way. Now, I see these as plausible ways of defending these species introductions or species resurrections, but even without releasing these species, there could be reasons to resurrect them. And these are very human-centric reasons. So many of these species are extremely culturally important. There's reasons why people want to enjoy them and have some sort of interaction with them. Now, clearly the thylacine is culturally important in Australia, but in New Zealand, there's quite a bit of discussion around the de-extinction of the huia, which is a bird that went extinct about 100 years ago. And the huia had a really important role in Maori culture. And restoring the huia would restore this population of cultural significance and allow for all sorts of cultural practices to then be enacted. So to return to the discussion of reparations, there could actually be a case in some instances in which we may say that bringing back a population that was eliminated by a settler population, uh, which has some very important role within Indigenous people's cultural practices, that could be, in fact, a way of justifying some sort of reparations. Now, when it comes to the thylacine, I think that you would need to do the cultural engagement and research to sort of identify whether that's actually something that uh, the relevant Indigenous groups would want. 
And I think that this is important social science that probably needs to be done. Christopher Lane, he's a research fellow in the Biosciences Group at the University of Sydney, and he was speaking there with Kate Lynch, who's a lecturer in the History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Melbourne. Kate's also a former guest on this very program. And this very program is The Philosopher's Zone. I hope you can join us next time for part two of this conversation about de-extinction. I'm David Rutledge. See you then. See you then.